if you haven't already, turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Tonight we begin what I'll just say is an open-ended study. How's that? Uh, we're going to be in Luke for a while, I think. But <laughs> uh, I'm not looking for a show of hands by asking this question. Uh, I'm simply priming the pump to get us thinking along the lines that really we're probably already thinking in uh, because of what I've just shared with the children. But uh, I want to ask this question of everybody just to, to keep that rolling. And who here has ever doubted um, the truth of the Bible in general? Who has ever doubted the truthfulness and veracity of the gospel? Who has ever doubted their salvation? And that list could go on. We could make other questions or we could ask other questions. And I think, um, and I ask them in this way because I do believe what I shared with the children. And I do believe that probably everybody in the room could raise their hand. If not answering yes to all three of those questions, at least to one of them. And, and it's, if, if we think about, say, you know, Betty and the Warrens who've been Christians for over 60 years, or whether it be um, you know, Joshua and Reese and Caroline and Sarah and Jane and Oliver and Campbell and Chaucer and Sawyer and Ember and Nathaniel who all have begun coming to the table over the last couple years, um, and everybody in between, Right? It's, been, it's something that we deal with. We all, at one time or another, identify with the Father in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. And for some, it's been a rare occurrence. Maybe it's only been once, but for others, it's an occasional experience. And then honestly, there may be some, quite possibly, who find it a very common and frequent struggle something that you wrestle with. But the reality is, is while we as Christians are now prone to follow and to obey Christ by God's grace and by the regenerating and sanctifying, ongoing sanctifying power and work of the Spirit, we also still remain, in the words of the hymn writer Robert Robinson, prone to wander. Right? We do both. As sheep, we stray. We stray from the love and the provision and the protection of the great shepherd because our minds wander. And our minds wander because we wonder if what we have professed to believe, if it is actually true. And I get that. I understand that because I've, I... I and the same. But let's think about it for just a minute. I want us to think why I get it, okay? There is an eternal and infinite and triune and omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, self-sufficient, wise, holy, just, good, merciful, gracious, and loving God who has created all of us. And He created us because He desired 
so much to, well, he created us to dwell among us and to fellowship with us, and he desired that so much that despite our doubt, despite our disobedience, despite um, our offense, despite our doubt, despite our sin and rejection and rebellion, he purposed and initiated and carried out a redemptive plan of salvation that would salvage us and restore us. It was a a plan unlike any other plan that any human could come up with or devise. Because his plan did not include in any way anything on our part so we, we have not been required to ascend into his presence. We've not been required in any way to attempt on our part to successfully attain any merit that might qualify us for reinstatement of some kind. He has not required us in any way to accomplish any work to satisfy or to pay back the debt that we owed for our sin. As we learned last week, his plan included not just a descent, but a condescension. He left glory, the eternal son taking on flesh and dwelling among us and being obedient to the point of death on the cross and his death not only paying the debt that we owed, but his life, his active obedience has now been credited to our account. His righteousness has been, we have been robed in His righteousness. It is now now given and granted to us. And we stand before Him not only forgiven, but righteous and just and holy. It was through His death that our sin was atoned for and our debt was paid and it was through his active life that that we have been well through his active and passive obedience we have been redeemed and adopted and our standing and our position has been changed we're no longer enemies of his but we're now sons and daughters heirs of the king our salvation is completely about what he has done for us, not what we can do for him. And the faith through which we not only believe that, but through which we receive the benefits of his work was also a gift. And so I get it when we doubt. Why? Because our salvation It is a God-centered salvation. It's not a man-centered salvation. So when we doubt, we go back to believing at some point that our salvation is man-centered in some way. We begin thinking more about ourselves. We begin thinking more about our ability. And as we do that, we think less about our sin and less about our need and less about Christ. And so we need to be reminded on a regular basis about our salvation, which is why we're going to spend time in Luke. 
because that's why Luke wrote his gospel. Tonight, we're going to look at these first four verses. Um, And the first four verses are going to be outlined this way. You'll find it in the back of your bulletin, but we're going to look at this gospel. It is an orderly account. It is a verifiable account, and it is also a purposeful account of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we believe that your word is authoritative and inerrant and sufficient, and that through it you grant us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So we ask for ears to hear that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. We admit that we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. And so I ask that you take your word and you speak to and seal our hearts, drive the dark of doubt away, and fill us with your light. Use me in these moments as you see fit in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his church, I ask these things. Amen. And amen. So let's look first at an orderly account. Let's look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from time past, sometime past, to write an orderly account. Well, as most historians do, Luke begins this narrative with a prologue. He kind of sets up uh, what it is that he is about to do. He's setting the stage for what is to come. And from the very beginning, he makes sure that Theophilus and others who will be reading uh, know that, that he is not attempting to be novel. He's not attempting to do what others, uh, to do something that others have not done. He's not blazing a trail in any way. He readily admits that there have many who have written. He doesn't, we don't know how many that actually uh, includes, but many have written about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. And, and these written accounts were based upon firsthand experiences. There were eyewitnesses that had had been talked to and, or, or those that had written had actually been eyewitnesses and had written of the accounts of their experiences. There were also oral traditions being passed around and these, these uh, things that had been written and these oral traditions had been passed around for around 30 years or so and he's open and honest about the fact that he's taking all of those things in and he's compiling them together. But he's also clear that he is not uh, presenting the work of others and simply just passing it on. So if we were to think in blogging terms, he's not simply cutting and pasting and sticking his name on it and claiming it is his. He's taking all of this information together. He's investigated. He believes his investigation has been exhaustive. He's taken the time to, to read and then to talk to the people who have written and to talk to those who are in those stories. He's taken the time to question those who were eyewitnesses and who have the oral accounts. He's covered everything. He's been exhaustive. He's talked to anybody at his disposal, and he's compiled it into what he calls an orderly and concise summary 
And what that simply means is, is it's logical. There is this idea that there is some chronology to it, but it's, it's not strict by any stretch. One commentator says that there's actually this geographic following uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Another, uh, another commentator said that it flows, there's this dramatic flow from uh, the popularity of Christ to, to questions about Him and opposition toward Him to ultimate rejection of Him. And then another even said that there's this theological order that's present from prophet, priest, and king. But for us tonight, the best, for, best understanding is that it's going to be logical and it's going to make sense because of how he's put it together. And that brings us to the second point, which is the verifiable account. His sources that he talked to could all be checked, right? They could all be questioned by others, and those eyewitnesses would be able to affirm or deny what he had written. They would be able to look and to hear what he had said, and because they had been a part of the process, they could say, no, what Lucas said is wrong, or yes, what Lucas said is right. And, and while the, a third of his material is actually unique, there are two-thirds that are similar, and so those, those you know, they, they could be set side by side and the veracity be checked. It could be verified. And when you add to that his naming of Caesars and kings and tetrarchs and governors, he presents the information within a historical context that, a context that can again be verified. There are dates and names that, that are going to be found in other places. And so he very definitely, by how he did that, set it apart from any type of myths or fables of his day. But it also, it sets Luke apart from any fifths, uh, myths and fables from our day as well. When we think of Muhammad in Jerusalem being transported there and Joseph Smith and his experience in a sacred grove, you know, those incidents, those events can only be verified by, by those two individuals. There was nothing to back that up. So Luke's gospel was also considered and accepted as canonical uh, from the early church, and it was also accepted by heretics like Marcion, who didn't believe most of the Bible, but he believed Luke, speaking to, again, the veracity of what Luke has done. And if we were to use the words of Josh McDowell, in his old book, you know, the external evidence of the gospel demands a verdict, right? and Luke tells us that the verdict has always been, it is true. The gospel is true. Christ and who He is and, and the stories of Jesus and who He is are true. And so we ask, why is that important? Why is it important that that those things be verifiable, and why, why should they be presented logically? And, and the answer is, well, it helps us, or it helps him, and it helps us in understanding what the purpose is for which Luke is writing. Why, why did he write? 
He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, Theophilus was a Gentile, and he had been taught the things of Christ, and so many believe that he was, in fact, a Christian. Uh, It's uh, very possible that as a Gentile, he was struggling with doubt for a number of reasons, Um, He would have been asking some of the questions that we have asked time and time again. You know, is is the gospel true? Am I saved? Why would he save a sinner like me? You know, as a Gentile, he's now a part of a a religious tradition that is associated with that the Jewish tradition, and so he had to be wrestling with, you know, well, why would I have adopted this belief system, and why am I, you know, now I'm, I'm a part of a community of faith with people that at one time were hostile toward me, and I was hostile toward them, and so those things are racing out in his mind, and he had to also be thinking that there's this growing animosity toward Christians, and so he had to be asking himself, you know, am I, you know, is this going to be worth it? And of course, we can't forget the likelihood that there was hypocrisy evident within the community of faith, and he, as a believer, asking the questions about potential, the potential of people letting him down due to their failure not to walk the talk. And so Luke says, I'm writing that you could be certain. I want you to be certain. The facts are the facts. These things happened. And he adds to that and he says, I I want you to understand that there is a significant theological and redemptive and salvific meaning to all of these events. And I say that because of the word he uses in verse 1, that word accomplished. It means fulfilled. And so what he is saying by using it is that he's referring to the fact that everything that he's compiled, all the stories and and the things about Jesus, all of those things were fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. So he's he's wanting Theophilus to know that it's, it's, it's Christ to whom the Scriptures have been pointing all along. So Luke is doing nothing more than giving an account of the flow of Scripture from beginning to end. And he's, he's saying, look, God fulfilled the promises that He made in Genesis 3 and 12 and 15 and 17 and 2 Samuel 7 and Jeremiah 31, just to name a few. What he's saying is that you know, these things that have occurred and that I'm writing, that you know, Jesus is the one that fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 9 and 52 and 53, just again to name two. He's saying that it was God himself that fulfilled the law given at Mount Sinai. And, and he's saying, and he's able to say that. He can say that because Jesus himself said it. And Luke records that later on in the gospel in chapter 24. Now, I know that's fast and quick, straightforward. It's, it's even simple and maybe even abbreviated. But that's the extent of the prologue. But what that does is it allows us and it gives us time to to focus on a few takeaways that I think are important for all of us. There are four of them that I want us to think through. 
And the first is this. For those who have ever doubted the truth, doubted the truth of the Bible in general, of the gospel, of your salvation, this letter was not only written for Theophilus, but it was written for you. And it was written for me. That we might be certain. And so in light of that, I I want us to think about, uh, I want to make a couple of suggestions under this first takeaway. And the first is, we need to cling to the hope that certainty is in fact possible. Right? It is possible to be certain. And I'm going to read the question and answer that the kids will be covering this week in their family worship time. Question 80 says this, can true believers be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and that they shall persevere therein unto salvation? And the Bible answers as summarized in the confession, it says, such as truly believe in Christ and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before Him may, without extraordinary revelation, by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises and by the Spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made and bearing witness with their spirits that they are the children of God, be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and shall persevere therein unto salvation. The Bible's answer, as summarized in the confession, is it is possible to be assured. We can be certain. And Luke writes to that effect. And then the second suggestion is this. I would would hope that we would all, as we've been mentioning over the last few weeks, that we would all arrive here on Sunday nights and in our small groups having prepared to hear the word read and preached. We go back to question 90. What makes the Word effectual unto salvation? And it's that we attend thereunto with diligence and preparation and prayer and we receive it with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And as we do that, we, we, right, it will be made effectual to our salvation And another way to put that would be, we will be certain. The Spirit will speak through His Word and will assure us and strengthen our faith. The second takeaway, I want us to notice, again, I went through that quickly, but I want us to notice that Luke didn't chastise. He didn't communicate his disappointment in or ridicule Theophilus for his doubt. He didn't even deny the fact that the gospel was hard to believe. He simply sought to thoroughly and and completely and thoughtfully explain more clearly what had been written and had been passed down orally. And brothers and sisters, I believe that we should do the same. We should follow Luke's lead in doing the same for each other. And that means creating a safe environment to express those doubts, to express those questions, to ask those questions, and to discover the answers in the Word of God. And, and that means for adults, right, we may need to humble ourselves and admit that we don't have all the answers, humble ourselves and admit that we too struggle with doubt from time to time as well, and we need to allow our children to ask 
those questions. And children, that means for you that you need to be willing to express and ask those questions of your parents. When those thoughts come, when those questions arise, don't don't stay in your own head. Have conversations with them, with me, with, with your elders. We need to be ready to do the hard work to go and find answers that we may not have readily available and do that with them because we're a part of a community of faith. And that's what we do within the community of faith. Thirdly, third takeaway, we need to remember that as Reformed Christians, our certainty in what we believe to be true and how we are free to live our lives and how we worship and how we're committed to simple means of grace ministry can sometimes be communicated in a way that comes across as arrogant both to non-Christians and to non-Reformed Christians. And so it's important for us to not only be sensitive to those that we encounter and who come and visit, but to take the time to inform and to, and to walk alongside and to visit with and to explain what it is that we believe and why we believe it and why we do what we do and why we live the way we live and why we worship the way we worship. We need to interact and, and be aware of the fact that it is a cultural shift for non-believers to become believers and for non-reformed Christians to become reformed Christians. And it, it rocks worlds in many respects. And we need to be patient and responsible and exhibit grace. We do need to communicate our certainty in the gospel and in our soteriology and in our ecclesiology and even in our polity. And I, I believe that we're going to have a growing number of opportunities to do that in these days and months ahead with non-believers and with believers alike. And we need to do so appropriately and handle that. Uh, lastly, takeaway number four. We need to remember that our message has always been and will ever remain unique. Our message is unique. It's what I mentioned as we began. The gospel does not include any of our work. The gospel is about what Christ has done for us. His passive work, His active work, He was our perfect substitute, He was our perfect sacrifice. We stand before the Father holy, blameless, righteous, and just because our sins have been forgiven through His blood and His righteousness has been credited to us. And the world needs to hear that message because it is unique and it will always be unique. It is a message we should not only be certain of and rest in, and live in light of, but one in which we should always, always proclaim. Because Jesus is our only hope. 
And I pray that the Lord would bless our study of this wonderful gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, by your spirit and grace, would you allow us and enable us again to receive your word with faith and love? May we lay it up on our hearts in our minds, and may we practice it in our lives for your glory, for our good and the good of our neighbor, for the sake of your church, and in the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ that I pray, amen.